0: we do have an obligation as part of the larger community to take to heart the rights and needs of all Americans, um, particularly those who are the most marginalized. And I think that we will successfully get rid of this mascot. And I think that uh, this case, you know, now we have the court saying that it's racist. And that's something that can never be taken away. If we understand the U.S. as a colony, and I call the U.S. a colony without portfolio, a colony without a homeland, it basically still operates and functions as a colony. What does a colony do? It goes to other people's homelands and appropriates their wealth as quickly as possible and sends it to the ruling class of its own country, the 1%. And that is pretty much exactly how the United States operates. And and President Trump is the uh, absolute ideal colonial ruler. So I think that there is within the united states consciousness a colonial identity and that colonial identity is based in white supremacy because of the history of slavery
1: welcome to the edge of sports podcast i'm dave Ziron. this week we speak to the founder of eradicating offensive native mascotry jacqueline keeler about the recent trademark decision by the Supreme Court that ruled that racist trademarks were protected speech. That is a huge victory for the Washington football team. And we're going to speak about what next for the fight against the racist brand that adorns the name of the NFL franchise here in the nation's capital. My name is Dan Schneider, proud owner of the Washington Redskins football team. In the name of decency, I am asking that you please stop using the name Washington Redskins to refer to your company. Stop? But why? You have no right to use our name to get attention. Uh, the trademark got pulled, so I'm totally free to use the name, actually. Look, don't you see that when you call your organization the Washington Redskins, it's offensive to us? How is it offensive? It's derogatory, Mr. Cartman. It makes us feel like a joke! Guys, guys!
2: I have total respect for you. When I named my company Washington Redskins, it was out of deep appreciation for your team and your people. Well, we don't feel very respected.
1: Also, we have some choice words about Philando Castile, The Verdict, Colin Kaepernick, and the lost wisdom of Roger Goodell's father. We also have some Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down. We have some really important words about the 45th anniversary of Title IX, and a correction from last week's show. A big correction from last week's show. You gotta wait till the end of the show to find out what we messed up. But first, let's bring out our guest, Jackie Keeler. Before we bring on Jackie Keeler, I want to give her some proper intro love. Jackie Keeler is a Dine Dakota writer living in Portland, Oregon, and the founder of Eradicating Offensive Native Mascotry. They are the creators of the Not Your Mascot hashtag. She's contributed to many publications, including The Nation and Yes Magazine, and she's been interviewed on MSNBC and Democracy Now! Her book, The Edge of Mourning Native Voices Speak for the Bears' Ears, is available from Tory House Press. And the forthcoming, Standing Rock to the Bundy Standoff Occupation, Native Sovereignty, and the Fight for Sacred Landscapes, damn, that's an amazing title, will be released next year. So proud to have her on the show. Let's start talking to Jackie Keeler. So, Jackie, this trademark case has been in all the headlines as this big victory for Dan Snyder and the Washington football team. But this case was not, in fact, brought forward by him. It has a much more bizarre route to this point where Dan Snyder is proclaiming great victory for racist brands. Can you explain the case?
0: Well, the case involves um, the Slants. They're an Asian-American band in Portland, Oregon, and it was uh, brought forward by one of the members, Simon Tam. He attempted to um, trademark their name and was denied um, under uh, the Lanham Act Section 2A um, against uh, offensive language and, and hate speech. So, as Asian Americans, they're trying to reclaim and reappropriate a slur. And what he found out further, when he investigated the way the Lanham Act is actually administered by the trademark office, is that it's done very irregularly. Um, you know, they have a bunch of attorneys, of course, working for them. Um, the attorneys are on a quota system, so they have they have only. That the most they can spend is five minutes on any application, and they don't have any training in cultural competency. Many of them are um, mostly white males from you know Ivy League institutions, and they are not that familiar with the issues. Their decisions on individual um, trademark applications do not set a precedent for future trademark applications. So you can have a situation where one person is, isn't denied, and the next person, which is when their application is reviewed by a different attorney, is accepted. Um, so the the Trademark Office has not done a great job of, of administering this law, and in fact, what he's found is that they actually tend to discriminate against people of color, LGBTQT um, folks, more than they do against white supremacists and non-minority uh, groups seeking trademarks.
1: Yeah, do you know what this story reminds me of? I mean so much are stories you've probably heard yourself about efforts by, say, feminist organizations to get uh, – violent pornography banned, and it tends up being used against like lgbt bookstores just something that happened in canada about 20 years ago or hate crime legislation that's used against people of color when it was originally put forward by well-meaning people who are trying to create extra punishment for people involved in actual white on black or brown racism and violence uh, is that what you're seeing here? Also,
0: he was saying that one of the most one really great responses he got was um, a 70-some-year-old woman um, sent him um, a champ, bottle of champagne, and you know she is um, LGBTQ, and this was a huge win, you know, for her community. It's very difficult for them to get trademarks um, for words that they have been working on appropriating, reappropriating, and so an example he gave was um, I, I had tea with him yesterday in Portland, and um, an example he gave was you know. Dyke's with bikes. They can't trademark that. I think they've done incredible strides um, to reclaim these hateful things that were once used against them uh, to, you know, marginalize them and open them up to violence.
1: Does Simon Tam also have any regrets? Because what this effect of this lawsuit has done, I understand about what you're saying about creating more space for LGBTQ people and for people of color to not be censored if they want to reappropriate words. But you know, the, the big headline story is that this is a huge victory for the most bigoted yeah. brand in sports. Does, does he feel any regrets about this? And do you feel, do you, part of you wish he'd never brought this forward in the first place?
0: Actually, you know, I, I had interviewed him, um, in January of last year and, I, and really I became much more familiar with his situation and pro football tried to join in, um, on his suit and they were denied by the Supreme court. And, um, and the lawyers had tried to contact him, and he has he has does not want to have anything to do with them. He made it clear, and they they and they retained within Simon's case, they retained a lot of um, language in there that explicitly describes um, the um, Washington team's mascot as being racist, and. Um, I think that, you know, for me as a Native person, when I first heard about this strategy, um, you know, going, um, taking on, um, you know, pro football under um, an obscure law, a trademark, patent law, um, I thought it was quite clever. And I was in college at the time um, at Dartmouth in the 90s, and and Suzanne Harjo came to visit us, and she was um, a fellow there. And, you know, she told us what she was doing, and we thought it was a great idea. But now, you know, I look at it now, especially after talking to Simon and looking at the larger picture larger issue of First Amendment rights. And I have to say that it was, you know, there was a lot of things that that case achieved, you know, particularly um, the Black Horse case, where um, the second version of her case, where you got you got the court to call the Redskins racist, you got that on record. Um, But I think that the that the strategy used had a fatal flaw, which is that it um, diluted the First Amendment and And I have to say that, in the end, you know, I think that we would have had a short term win, but it would have had larger re- repercussions, which um, we can find other strategies to get rid of this mascot we uh but we do have an obligation as part of the larger community to take to heart uh the rights and needs of All Americans, uh, particularly those who are the most marginalized. And I think that we will successfully, uh, you know, get rid of this mascot. And I think that uh, this case, led by Suzanne, um, has been a huge part of that, Uh, really raised the profile of it. Um, And, you know, now we have the court saying that it's racist. Um, you know, I think um, that's something that, that, that can never be taken away. And and certainly this ruling had nothing to do with pro football. It had to do with the constitutionality of an obscure section of a law passed in 1944.
1: Now, you just said something um, in the middle of that that I feel like has gotten no publicity whatsoever. Literally, you just said something that I did not know. And I've been reading about this nonstop since this happened. You said and I just want to make sure I get this right, that the Washington football team tried to join Simon's yeah. lawsuit and the Supreme Court did not allow them to do it. Yes. Not Simon, but the Supreme Court. Do you know what basis by which the Supreme Court wouldn't allow them to be part of the lawsuit?
0: Simon mentioned it yesterday when we were um, talking. And, and I, I do remember seeing a headline about that um, several months ago. Um, so, yeah, they did try, but they were denied. And, and he rebuffed their attorneys. And, and he has actually spoken um, on panels with the attorneys who devised uh, the strategy, the Lanham Act strategy for Suzanne Harjo. And um, and they agree with him. They agree that once it went to court, um, it probably would have been struck down as unconstitutional even. Um, and, and, you know, off the record, you know, they, you know, it would have been a lot more painful to um, have it been the Black Horse case be struck down than it was to have it indirectly struck down in this manner with um, with Simon Tam's case.
1: Well, you, you know, all this is on the record, just so you. Know. Oh,
0: sorry, <laughs> sorry. No, I mean, it would have been much more devastating for it to be to, for the law to be found unconstitutional um, with the Black Horse trademark case than with with his case. So it's sort of an indirect hit, you know. But no, it's it's not really involved. I mean, you know, the issue is that the strategy used um, had a flaw, and the flaw was that it um, undermined the First Amendment. And and I think that as Native Americans, we can we can analyze our strategy. We can come up with a better one. We can appreciate what that one did for us as far as bringing this to national attention. First in the original case with um, Suzanne Harjo and. Uh, the older respondents uh, in the nineties and then now with uh, a black horse and the respondents, uh, the younger respondents in, in the uh, 21st century. Yeah. I think the case was um, really a benefit in that way, but you know, sometimes we just have to look at our strategies and are we doing this? We're doing it for the right reasons, but in the larger picture, will we lose out?
1: Yeah. And I want to talk to you about strategies going forward in the wake of this, but before I do, I, I want to go back again to your uh, tea that you had with Simon Tam. Um, was there any part of him when speaking to him that he was just like like holding his head? Because like, so much of the publicity about this was yeah. big victory for, for Washington racist mascot you know, and Dan Snyder crowing about yeah. the results of the case. And here's Simon Tam, who certainly sounds like he's on the absolute other side of the ideological spectrum as Dan Snyder even while seeing the victory for what it is, and thank you for explaining that, um, was there? It, it, was Simon in any way visibly or verbally upset about the way this was being translated into the media?
0: Well, you know, I asked him about that, and he said that, I asked him how did he feel when he saw all the headlines were fo- focused on, you know, the Washington angle, and he said it, 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 it killed him, you know. He said that basically that what... Um, white supremacy does is it flattens and recenters these really important discussions um, around itself do you know what i
1: mean yeah and i'm actually my, my producer just showed me a headline as we were talking uh that says um the slant simon tam and then quote the courts hijacked my case and that article's by you
0: yes actually that interview goes into a lot more detail about the the role that the the judge in the previous case did and it was a lot of tampering i mean it was just insane it's a lot of ridiculousness um because the judge in his first case um was actually a friend of dan snyder's and stuff
1: he's hurting though is what you're saying
0: yeah but he you know but i think that what he did was is in the end we're gonna see it as a good thing i think um and you know he went through a lot being the lead plaintiff um you know A lot of harassment. even now, I mean, I saw that on Twitter, a Native um, person has made a a satire account of his band making fun of them. And actually, he's on Native America Calling today, which is a national Native call-in show. And, you know, I'm sure he'll be on there with um, Amanda Blackhorse and Suzanne Harjo. And he's going to have a lot of people, Native people, calling in, asking him really hard questions. And I think the main issue, though, is I think that Native Americans became so attached to this one Strategy, And I think that we need to step back and look at, you know, the other issues involved and, and still appreciate the strategy for what it achieved. Um, but we can we, we can um, we, we have other strategies in um, going on right now, um, you know, including um, lawsuits and um, against school districts. There's one with the National High School um, that's going on right now. Um, and then um, laws being passed, like the law passed in California. Um, you know, banning um, those terms. And and also, you know, I think that we can um, actually here in Portland or Oregon, um, a lot of the Native people are pretty upset. And so we talked about um, protesting at Nike World Headquarters again and asking Nike again to stop selling racist mascots.
1: We're talking a lot about, so what's the right strategy? And one of the dangers, and this isn't just about the mascot issue, but you see this across the anti-Trump resistance spectrum, one of the dangers of a uh, sole or a primary legal strategy is that it can tend to breed complacency as people wait for the courts to do their thing or put all their faith in the courts and moving away from the kinds of protests and uh, militancy that got the word out there in the first place. And we're speaking a lot about, about strategy, and going out to to Nike headquarters is absolutely something that we should be doing, Not, no question about it, because that's the kind of pressure we need to apply what else do you see going forward as a strategy if we're saying that the courts should not be our primary avenue for ending racist uh, mascotting?
0: Well, I think the courts are still a, an avenue, and, and there are, are pending cases. And um, certainly um, laws, um, local laws passed at the state level, and um, here in Oregon, they um, the um, Board of Education – has issued a a decision that uh, the schools, the high schools, would have to enter enter into an agreement with um, local, um, one of the nine confederated, the nine tribes in Oregon uh, to get permission to use a Native American mascot. And um, so there are steps being taken. And these are uh, being orchestrated by many groups. Um, I think that one was by the Oregon Indian Education Association, and um, and then of course, you know, we have laws being passed, and there are um, another um, human rights case that's being tried in Ontario and uh, in Canada, and so there are actions. I think that um, it is difficult to legislate um, against uh, to change people's minds through legislation. I think that. Um, you know, if you see what happened with some of the civil rights legislation, um, like the Voting Rights Act, it has been difficult to change sure. um, local communities' behaviors. Um, you know, they go back to um, to discriminatory practices when there's not court oversight, even 40 years later. Um, so I think that things like um, – I do feel –
1: Deliberate speed isn't always – very deliberate or speedy.
0: Part of what I, I look at a lot um, is the whole issue of colonialism. Um, I give this lecture about how the United States is still a colony and I think that um, if we understand the U.S. as a colony, still, even after the Revolutionary War, and I call the U.S. a colony without portfolio, a colony without a homeland, it basically still operates and functions as a colony. What does a colony do? It goes to other people's homelands, mm-hmm. you know, and appropriates their wealth as quickly as possible and sends it to the ruling class of its own country, the 1%. And that is pretty much exactly how the United States operates. And, and President Trump is the uh, absolute ideal colonial ruler. So I think that there is within the United States consciousness, a colonial identity. And that colonial identity is based in white supremacy because of the history of slavery. So I think that that is at the root of a lot of our problems. And it's not going away. I think that it's still a problem. Um, you know the vote for trump a rather incompetent white man who has risen to power in the world based on his whiteness <laughs> in wealth you know i think is uh is is the statement of certainly white america's belief in that paradigm so i i, I think that it's a it's a bigger problem and certainly mm. masketry is the actions of a victor to have the right to the image and the spoils of of those that they conquered and it's not a benign act
1: no exactly right then that, that's Yeah. And that's something that you and I have spoken about for years is that without genocide and displacement, there is no Washington uh, football mascot. I mean, and so, and if that has to be a precondition for your team name, maybe you need to re-examine whether this team name is something that should be amplified and deified as it is in this area where I live.
0: For me, I am looking at change coming from particularly the urban areas. Um, But, uh, that we need to really grapple with the history of the United States, with its, its continued identity and um, operation as a colonial enterprise. If we're going to look at Native people, we need to recognize that we are still sovereign nations within the United States and really come to terms with what it means to um, basically, I mean, is ethical colonialism possible even? I mean, is it? You know, I think most Americans view themselves as good people, but colonialism is an act of violence. And Basically, every American is a de facto colonist. How can you be an ethical one? Is there a way to, to change the relationship with Native people where it is not so harmful? I mean, to this day, Native youth have the highest rates of suicide. You know, the, the American dream comes at a cost, and it's paid with the lives of Native people, uh, not only in the Indian Wars of the 19th century, but today on reservations where and in other communities um, where Native people are um, really suffering. And there's very structural reasons for it. Um, you know, many reservations are deprived of infrastructure. Most Native people have to leave because they are economic refugees from their own homelands. It's it's a huge issue. I mean, I this is all one component of it.
1: Mm-hmm. So, all right, so I'm, I'm starting to feel uh, the strategy. It also sounds like uh, you're advocating – I I don't want to put words in your mouth, but something intersectional that – Combines the movement against uh, mascotry and, and and Native American sovereignty, like for example Standing Rock, which you and I discussed on a previous show, with movements, um, say against police brutality, Black Lives Matter. I mean, is say her name? Are, are you seeing these things as interconnected?
0: Absolutely, and it all it all ties to the colonial identity of most Americans, and we need to get Americans to recognize they are still colonists. This isn't their homeland. And um, this this is this land belongs to other other nations other peoples, and I think that then once they have that in their mind, then they can then they have a pathway to act ethically and morally. Uh, so I think um, actually I'm going back up to Standing Rock um, next week uh, to do. I'm writing a book about. I'm actually writing a book comparing uh, the Bundy's takeover of Malheur to Standing Rock.
1: Yes, we, we announced that book title <laughs> in introducing you. It's an, I just have to say independent of everything we're talking about, independent of politics, oh, independent of like-mindedness, Thanks. it is an yeah. awesome title. Love the title, Standing Rock to the Bundy Standoff, Occupation, Native Sovereignty, and the Fight for Sacred Landscapes. Oh, uh, But before, before we let you go, and you've been really generous with your time, i, I got to ask you one thing in terms of going forward and looking forward. As you're no doubt aware, uh, this year, for the very first time, the Washington football team will be hosting a game on Thanksgiving. It's hard to look at this as anything other than a huge middle finger by the NFL at anybody who associates, A, Thanksgiving uh, with any sort of genocide or displacement, and B, with anybody who finds the Washington image, mascot, anything offensive and associating it so closely with Thanksgiving, which is like the one white day where you tip a hat to Native Americans and say, gee, thanks for um, helping us survive. I mean, seems like such a Trumpian middle finger to all of us. First of all, is there any talk about any sort of protest online, otherwise at the stadium? It's an evening game on a cold November night when people are with their families. Not exactly ideal for protest conditions. But what are you hearing about this? I think
0: they're begging for a protest, and uh, and I and I'm sure they'll have one. And I think many native people who are um, who can make it there will go. And and have something to say. I think it's um it's definitely demands a response. It's um pretty shocking, you know. I think the arrogance of um, of many of the uh, the white men involved, particularly the, the billionaires, um is is notable. You know, I think part of the issue is that they simply are not accustomed to being told no. I often point that there is no financial incentive. They you know, Emory University did a study where they looked at the NCA. Um, uh, teams that changed their mascots uh, from a Native mascot to something else, and they found that after two years, uh, the fans actually were more engaged um, than before, and that suggests that the Indian mascot was somehow distancing, to, were putting the fans off, and so, yeah.
1: I just I, sometimes I feel like the the billionaire class in this country, like like the thing that they treasure the most the freedom that they treasure the most is the freedom to be an asshole
0: yeah i guess that's that's maybe somewhere there
1: and any infringement any infringement on their freedom to be an asshole to them might as well be nazi germany and it's like a nuclear response on their part to people just being like hey you know my my ancestors were kind of destroyed by your ancestors, and you know, maybe you could have just a, a modicum of, of a sympathy or acknowledgement. Do you think that might be possible? And then they're like, oh, my <laughs> God, it's like the Reichstag fire all over again. You know, studies
0: show that the more money you make, the, the more of a jerk you are as a driver you just feel more entitled to have the right to cross the road. Ah. You know, it's funny though. Prius drivers are supposed to be the worst,
1: (laughs) not too surprising. (laughs) Although they might have to update that, that poll to like the more money you make, the more obnoxious you are on your private plane.
0: We're primates. That's the whole key to it is primate behavior, you know? Uh, And certainly, you know, um, the one who's going to be the most uh, keening and, and whatever is going to be the one who gets his way and, Used to being groomed and everything um I think that's that's the behavior that you're seeing there. It's not the best primate behavior, but it's a primate behavior oh,
1: yeah I'll, i th- I think what we'll, we'll end with that because you know at searching for explanations for why the world is so screwed up right now, <laughs> I think anthropology is as good a get as any. For trying to understand what we're dealing with, um, hey Jackie Keeler, thank you so much for joining us. Before we go, everybody's got music they listen to, and they got to wake up in the morning. They got to work. They got to get <laughs> motivated. What's the Jackie Keeler soundtrack?
0: God, I I like Bach, um, cello suite. Is that bad?
1: Bach, that's awesome. I
0: have a cello, so nice
1: that means you also play bass right because you put it on its side and cello you've got a bass
0: yes I did play bass um, in a band and I just bought my son a bass so
1: no that's okay. awesome hey Jackie thanks so much for joining us good talking to you and now a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation magazine. you got to check out the new issue of The Nation. We really have some amazing articles that I want to underline. You've got Maggie Daugherty, who's a terrific reporter on the legacy of Grace Paley, Martin J on Axel Honneth, and Barry Schwabsky on Edwards Harrison. That's all in the books and arts section alone of the new issue of The Nation magazine. We also have front-page stories about the future of the Democratic Party and the future of struggle in the United States. The Nation. It's absolutely indispensable journalism for the Trump era. Support it, and you support this podcast. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the podcast. And now it's time for some choice words about the Philando Castile verdict, Colin Kaepernick, and the lost wisdom of Roger Goodell's father. Yes, you did hear me correctly. Look, when Philando Castile's killer, Officer Geronimo Yanez, was found not guilty, despite the fact that Castile's murder was live streamed on Facebook, shock immediately spread from the streets to social media. Now, some celebrities in the world of sports and entertainment used their expansive platforms to spread the rather self evident message that a great injustice had occurred. They decried the fact that a man had been killed solely because of a police officer's reaction the color of his skin, and that there would be no penalty for that killing. But one athlete expressed something more serious, more radical, and more fitting for this moment. That athlete was exiled free agent quarterback Colin Kaepernick. First he expressed his sympathies, writing, My heart aches for Philando's family. Then he sent another message. He wrote, A system that perpetually condones the killing of people without consequence doesn't need to be revised, It needs to be dismantled. Beneath those words, he posted a photo of two eerily similar badges, one from the 19th century that reads runaway slave patrol and the other from the 21st century that reads police officer. It was a bracing statement that spoke to our effort to understand how the courts seem to have decided that cops have a license to kill if their victim has black skin. It was also a reminder that political expressions like this are precisely why Kaepernick is still without a job. NFL owners are set on punishing him for his anthem protests, his Know Your Rights camps that teach young people quote, how to navigate oppression, end quote, and his social media postings. Kaepernick wants us to confront the gap between what this country purports to stand for and the lived experiences of black Americans. For NFL owners agitating for the dignity of black life unlike spousal abuse, drunk driving, or even murder, is unacceptable. Quarterbacks with one-tenth of Kaepernick's resume have been invited to training camps, while he and his spectacular 2016 4-1 touchdown-to-interception ratio remains at home. It's a blackballing, and to deny this is to deny the existence of the nose on your face. It's having someone spit in your eye and tell you it's raining. Despite this, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell rejected ...that any kind of blackballing was taking place. He called the NFL... ...a meritocracy... ...saying... ...if they see an opportunity to get better as a football team... ...they're going to do it. Harumph, 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 harumph... ...or words to that effect. This is absurd... ...and utterly at odds with the facts. It's also Roger Goodell performing his central job... ...being a flat catcher... ...the face to get punched when his 31 bosses... ...behaved in repugnant fashion. It would be so much better... If Goodell would stand up to them and tell the world the truth. That Kaepernick is being punished for his politics. It would be so much better if he had half the backbone of his father, Senator Charles Goodell. Charles Goodell was a Republican senator from New York, appointed after Robert Kennedy's assassination in 1968. Charles Goodell was something alien to today's Washington, D.C. A Republican of conscience. He made President Richard Nixon's enemies list by becoming the first person to propose legislation that would cut off all funds for the war in Vietnam. After being driven from office by the Republican establishment, he wrote a remarkable 1973 book called Political Prisoners in America. The book is about the importance of defending dissenters as an essential part of American democracy. Charles Goodell wrote, and I quote, I have come to see that our legal and political institutions are dangerously unresponsive and unyielding to the impassioned grievances of our own people. When words of appeal fall upon a seemingly inert system, words give way to action. End quote. He passionately argued that squelching dissent is an autocratic act at odds with democratic norms. He also wrote that the actions of people in power, when they are resistant to dissent, are expressing an insecurity in their own ideas, and are showcasing an inability to see the world through the eyes of others. He writes that this is not a sign of strength, but weakness. These words of Charles Goodell from 44 years ago could have been written today to describe the situation with the NFL, Colin Kaepernick, and Charles Goodell's son. They also speak to the importance of defending radical athletes with giant platforms in an era when Philando Castile's killer could somehow be found not guilty. Roger Goodell does not have to agree with Kaepernick, but he could be defending Kaepernick's right to not be exiled and prevented from making a living. If the NFL commissioner disagrees with me, I know a book he could read that might change his mind. And now it's time for the part of the Edge of Sports Podcast where we do the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. First, for Just Stand Up, this goes to NFL players Malcolm Jenkins, Torrey Smith, Devin McCourty, and Anquan Bolden. Look, people might remember the story of the Beaumont Bulls. That was the middle school football team in Beaumont, Texas, that took a knee in a Kaepernick-style protest of the National Anthem last year. And then their league canceled their season. Now, many of the parents and coaches reacted to this by trying to create a new team in a different league where their kids were not beset upon because they dared have a political thought in their brain. There was one problem, though. They had no money. So Malcolm Jenkins, Tori Smith, Devin McCourty, and Anquan Bolden chipped in to pay for the inaugural season of the Southeast Texas Oilers. Here's this comment by Malcolm Jenkins about why they put up the money. They said, we wanted to make sure that we sent those kids the message that it's okay to stand up for what you believe in. We didn't want them to walk away from the season feeling punished for trying to do the right thing. We wanted to make sure that was rewarded and acknowledged and encouraged. So that was our main motivation for helping, end quote. That was Malcolm Jenkins. Just stand up to Jenkins, Torrey Smith, Devin McCourty, Anquan Bolden, and of course to the family, players, and coaches who, who were formerly with the Beaumont Bulls and now are the Southeast Texas Oilers. And now the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. It's not political, but it might as well be. It goes to Phil Jackson, who seems permanently hell-bent on destroying the team of my youth, the New York Knicks. The latest news people might have heard, he's effectively running the best Knicks draft pick in 30 years, Kristaps Porzingis, out of town. Because, hey, who needs a 21-year-old who's 7'3 and runs like a deer and scores 20 points a game on their team anyway? It seems that Phil doesn't want him there because Porzingis missed their exit meeting after an incredibly frustrating season. Phil Jackson. Who in the NBA draft this past week Passed, in my opinion Were two of the best guards in the draft He needed a guard He didn't want Dennis Smith Jr. He didn't want Malik Monk But he really, really wanted Frank And Lickatina I think his name is pronounced I'm not entirely sure I'm sorry I don't have his name right But I do know that everybody was like Well, this kid has potential He's 18, he's a few years away from making it And I'm just sitting there with my head in my hands Malik Monk could have been a Nick. Dennis Smith Jr. could have been a Nick. But Frank, they say, is much better at the triangle, which is fine. It's like being a terrific cobbler. I mean, there's no shame in being a wonderful cobbler. It just doesn't have a lot to do with the 21st century. I'm actually really good at setting the clock on a Betamax. It's not getting me any work. That's Phil Jackson, the Betamax of NBA Minds. And I'm trying to even think of why Phil Jackson is doing this, because one of the things I refuse to believe is that he's gone from somebody who won 11 rings as an NBA coach. 11 rings. It's an unbelievable number if you think about it. 11 rings. How he went from that to being literally the stupidest person in any NBA room that he's in. How does that happen? I refuse to believe that he was just dropped on his head. What I think is that there is a conspiracy and it all dates back to 1994 when phil jackson coached the chicago bulls to 55 wins their first year without michael jordan led by Scottie pippen and a new player named tony kukoc That 55-win team would have been the crown on Phil Jackson's resume because what is the criticism that Phil Jackson has had to hear from day one? It's, yeah, he won 11 rings, but guess what? He won six of them with Michael Jordan and five of them with Shaquille O'Neal or Kobe Bryant. And people have said time and again, sure, give me one of the 10 best players to ever exist, and I'll win rings too. Now, I would make the case that that's incredibly short-sighted and doesn't account for the fact that neither Kobe nor Michael never won a ring with a different coach. I would throw that in there. And Shaq's only other ring was with Pat Riley as a coach, so it should not necessarily be uh, discounted to such a profound degree, Phil Jackson's role in those teams, but Phil Jackson's got a mighty ego. And that 94 team was actually set up to go all the way to the finals, and yet what happened in the playoffs? He went against the Knicks... And they lost in very, very difficult fashion due to a phantom call made by referee Hugh Hollins, which gave Hubert Davis two free throws and a critical victory in that series. I think since that day in 1994, Phil Jackson has said, no matter what I do with the rest of my life, I'm going to destroy the New York Knicks. It's just a theory. It's just a theory. But then the theory is he gets the job. And since then, he's been trying to hollow the team out. Every single day. That's why he wakes up in the morning to purposefully hollow out the New York Knicks. I think he sits at night, looks at a picture of Hugh Hollins taped to his wall, has a big old toke of whatever it is Phil Jackson's smoking these days, and you know he's smoking something, and he's saying, Excelsior. Just my theory. Now we're going to play a call from an Edge Sports listener, Jason, from New York. I thought this was a good one. So did my producer, Dan Baker. Let's play this right now.
2: Hey, Dave. This is Jason from New York, and I just wanted to comment on a few things that have bothered me throughout the course of the last week since the Warriors won the championship. Most of it centers around the hate, which LeBron James has received on social media. In my opinion, much of it stems from grown men who seem to have a deep-seated need to see LeBron feel pain and humiliation. I think much of that hate has to do with the inherent nature of toxic masculinity in sports. Seems like toxic masculinity and sports go hand-in-hand in, hand in like helping to perpetuate irrational jingoism. Uh, this is something which is rarely discussed in sports, but in my opinion, it's at the root of where these grown men uh, who are spewing hate toward LeBron is coming from. Uh, there are a couple of additional layers um, to this hate that I think as well. I think uh, a lot of it stems from the decision and LeBron has had to continually defend himself from detractors. This, in turn, has like really uh, negatively affected their perception of him. Uh, people tend to forget that Dan Gilbert didn't spend money and acquire satisfactory talent to ensure that the Cavs were competitive for years to come. He used LeBron as a cash cow the same way that the Sixers used Allen Iverson as a cash cow for many years. Ultimately, people seem uh, upset that he went to the Heat to start a Big 3. But folks tend to forget that for years, white executives and owners have moved around players as if they were chattels. But when a few black athletes make unilateral moves with their friends, it tends to be ball players as well. Everyone seems to throw their their hands up in the air. But folks don't remember it was just 10 years ago that the president of basketball operations for the Boston Celtics, Danny Ainge, placed a call to his good friend, who was a former. Celtics' teammate, Kevin McHale, who was the vice president of basketball operations for the Timberwolves at the time. It, it, it took the two of them about two or three weeks to engineer a trade to get Kevin Garnett. In return, the Timberwolves acquired five players and two first-round first round draft picks that amounted to nothing. Uh, and the next year, the rest is history. The Celtics won their first championship in 22 years, which coincidentally was the last time McHale and Ainge were teammates on the same uh, Boston team, especially to me this is two former white teammates colluding to enrich their former franchise where they met and became lifelong friends there's a double standard in that in the way that we look at things as a whole in our society, and people don't seem to look at it from that perspective I just wanted to get your take and your thoughts and your sentiments and just thank you for all the great work that you're doing man, I can't thank you enough you continually enrich my life on a week to week basis, and I really look forward to the Edge of sports Thanks a lot, Dave. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much, Jason, from New York. Dan Baker, who's a Celtics fan, was in all true transparency. was not thrilled (laughs) with that call. I thought it was awesome. Um, I agree with everything that you said, and I could extend it to the Golden State Warriors, as angry as they made me this year, uh, that we would get angry at Kevin Durant and Draymond Green for calling each other and hooking that up. Uh, I don't see why we don't reserve that same anger for that Kevin Garnett trade, which handed the Celtics a title in the summer of 2007. But really do appreciate the call. Thank you so much, Jason, and please keep listening. And now a quick word from the second best podcast that The Nation magazine sponsors Start Making Sense. It's an incredible show this week on Start Making Sense, hosted by John Weiner. He's got George Zornick about the Republican plan to utterly overhaul the health care system to make it a giant tax cut for the wealthy. It's sickening, but George Zornick breaks down uh, the effort to do so. Also, Sarah Leonard is on the show to talk about her article, Why Are Young People Voting for Old Socialists?, talking about youth support for people like Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn and similar candidates across europe and jedediah purdy responds to critics of henry david thoreau and walden outlining the radicalism of his politics and his writing that's on the new edition of start making sense it's political talk without the boring parts every thursday at posts at nation.com. and now back to the podcast Before we go, I got a big old correction from last week. I was speaking about one of my sheroes, Brianna Stewart, the terrific basketball player for the Seattle Storm, one of my favorites, someone who's been at protests against Trump's Muslim ban, and somebody who we all saw at UConn absolutely ruled the college basketball landscape four titles in four years. Just a thrill and a joy to watch her play. And as for this person whom I revere so much, last week I called her... Becky Stewart. Not Brianna Stewart. Becky Stewart. My bad. I really am sorry about that. I have a friend named Becky Stewart, and I said Becky instead of Brianna. My fault. Brianna Stewart, please, you are still welcome on the Edge of Sports podcast. And speaking of women's sports, a big shout out because as we are recording this podcast, it is the 45th anniversary of Title IX legislation. Those 37 words that changed the world. Here are the words of the 1972 law. No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from, participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. See, I wanted to read the words because a lot of people, when they hear Title IX, associate it with sports. And, of course, it's had its most public impact with sports. But Title IX legislation is something that has positively affected the lives of literally tens of millions of women in this country. And it was passed because of the women's liberation struggle Or you could just argue that Richard Nixon, who signed it into law, was just the most D.L. feminist in the history of women's rights I choose to believe the former, that it happened because of a mass struggle for women's liberation Not the latter, that Richard Nixon was just, golly gee, a really great guy So, big shout out to Title IX just want to wrap up the show with these words as well i want to thank my producer dan baker who rode solo this week david tigaboo's out of action and i want to thank everybody out there who listens to the podcast really appreciate all your feedback at all times you can always reach me dave Zirin at edgeofsports at gmail.com. You could reach me over Twitter, at edgeofsports. You should follow the Twitter feed for this podcast, at edgeofsportspod. For everybody out there listening, you can also call us anytime you want at 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. If you have any comments whatsoever about the show. If you like the show, please go to iTunes. Please go to Stitcher. Give it a nice rating. Give it a nice review. For everybody out there listening, for Dan Baker, I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Peace.